Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 63. Last week, I covered the history of Ugarit, the port city found in the modern country of Syria. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the small town of Bethlehem, first found in Genesis 35 as the burial place of Rachel. So let's get started. Bethlehem is located about 6 miles or 10 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. It is actually on the road between Jerusalem and Hebron. It's in the hill country, specifically in the southern portion of the Judean mountains. Finally, it's about 45 miles or 73 kilometers inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Three religions hold the city to be sacred. Christianity and Judaism, of course, but also Islam. And the reason why Islam holds it sacred is that it was the birthplace of Jesus, who they consider to be a prophet of Allah. In the Old Testament, the city was relatively significant. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, and is found in both Genesis chapters 35 and 48, it was at Ephrath that Rachel died in childbirth and Ephrath is considered to be the ancient name of the town of Bethlehem. Her tomb is there today. A picture of it will be posted on the podcast Facebook page. Salma, a grandson of Caleb, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, is called the father of Bethlehem, and of course is considered to be the Hebrew founder of the city. Generally, the city is thought to have been converted to a Jewish-controlled town during the time of the rule of the Judges, which itself is thought to have occurred between the 12th and 11th centuries BC. In the Book of Ruth, Amelamech and Naomi were originally from Bethlehem, and it was to Bethlehem that Naomi returned from Moab with her recently widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. It was also here that Ruth married her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. All of this can be found in the Book of Ruth in chapters 1 through 4. And finally, as seen in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it was the home of David, where the prophet Samuel anointed him long before his exploits against Goliath and, of course, before he became king of the united Israel. And, just to add a little to the confusion, there were actually two towns named Bethlehem, the one in Judea, which is what I am covering today, but there was also one in the northern part of the Levant, which is frequently referred to as being in the territory of Zebulun, in the region of Galilee, as seen in Joshua chapter 19. The famous one was in the territory of the tribe of Judah, and Ephrath is thought to have been the Canaanite name for Bethlehem. It is generally believed that this name, Ephrath, simply means fertile. In some places, such as in the book of Micah, you will see that city spelled a bit differently as Ephrata. The name Bethlehem is also somewhat related to the word fertile, but in a different sense. It is generally thought to be more correctly interpreted as the house of meat in Arabic, or in some sources the house of bread in Hebrew. I'm going with the house of bread interpretation. Back in the Old Testament, Bethlehem is notorious for its association with the violence that accompanied King David. It was the home of a Levite and his concubine, 
It was the murder of this concubine that served as a catalyst for a war between several of the Israeli tribes that nearly annihilated the tribe of Benjamin. All of this can be found in the book of Judges, chapters 19 and 20. After the Babylonian exile, and when the Jewish people of the area were kingless, the prophet Micah, in chapter 5 of the book bearing his name, prophesies that God was going to raise up a new king from the house of David, from the city of Bethlehem. To bookend the story, it was in Bethlehem that David was anointed as the next king, and it was also there that the new king would come, at some then-yet-to-be-determined time. And of course, as seen in both Matthew and Luke, both in their respective chapters too, it was here that Jesus was born. And all of this because it was David's hometown and Joseph was descended from the house of David. Matthew interpreted this as the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, specifically in chapter 5 of the prophet's book. Early Christian tradition, dating to around the 2nd century AD, identified a cave as the site of Jesus' birth. Wait, what? A cave? And you thought he was born in a manger? Well, I'm not going to dive too quickly or deeply into that just yet. I'll save that whole explanation for some episode way in the future when I make it to the New Testament, or maybe for a Christmas supplemental episode. Now having said that, neither Matthew nor Luke actually say where he was born. It is Luke, to quote, that states, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. End quote. So she laid him in a manger, but for clarity, a manger is not a place, but it is instead a thing. According to Webster's Dictionary, it's essentially a long open box or trough for horses or cattle to eat from. Therefore, he wasn't born in a trough, but a trough served as his cradle where he slept. And a manger could certainly be found in a barn or stable, but not exclusively. Not that the actual location matters, whether a stable or a barn or a cave. The place was no doubt humble. So the ancient tradition is that he was born in a cave and laid in a manger. And that's a very brief survey of the city as found in the Bible. But what about its history is known from outside sources? The first mention of the city, at least that outside of the Old Testament, is in the Armana letters, written around the 14th century BC, and when the city was occupied by the Canaanites. In total, there were six letters from the Egyptian governor of Jerusalem, known by the name Abdi Heba. In one of the letters, he appealed to the Pharaoh in retaking a village known as Bit Lamia. In his words, a village which once belonged to the king has fallen to the enemy. Let the king hear the words of your servant Abi Heba, and send archers to restore the imperial lands of the king. End quote. Of course, I'm including the passage because it is believed that the village named in the letter is the same one that would later be known as Bethlehem. More specifically, the resemblance of this name to its later names is thought to show that this was a settlement of Canaanites. These Canaanites also had a common Semitic culture and linguistic heritage, 
with the inhabitants who were found by the later arriving Israelites. And, as for their religion of the era, we know of at least one of their gods, and his name was Lakama. This deity is thought to be the same as Lakmo, the Chaldean god of fertility. In the third millennium BC, the Canaanites of Bethlehem built a temple to this deity on a hill above the town. This is the same location where the Church of the Nativity would later be built. It is believed that they referred to their town as Beit Lakama, giving homage to their deity, and translating to the phrase, the House of Lakama. Later, but prior to the arrival of the post-Exodus Israelites, the Philistines would fortify the town. Archaeological excavations of the city have revealed evidence of Bronze and Iron Age settlements, which is not surprising considering the events of Genesis 35 essentially occurred in the late Bronze Age. An ancient cemetery was uncovered in 2013 by a team of Italian as well as Palestinian archaeologists. They found over 100 tombs that are thought to date to between about 2200 and 650 BC, and this shows what is believed to be a constant occupation. Other finds have included a type of letter sealing stamp that when impressed read, From the town of Bethlehem to the king. It is believed that this seal was used on the string closing a shipment of grain, wine, or other goods sent as a tax payment during probably the 8th or 7th century BC. This would place it in the kingdom of Judah. Note that this time was prior to the Babylonian captivity. And the outside history goes silent on the town from then until the AD Roman occupation. Of course, based on the books of Matthew and Luke, we know of the importance of the town in that time period. The historic record picks up a couple of hundred years after that when Bethlehem was obliterated by the Roman Emperor Hadrian during the 2nd century AD Bar Kokhba revolt. After the revolt was crushed, Hadrian had the Church of the Nativity converted into a shrine dedicated to the Greek god Adonis. Then, sometime around the year 330 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine's mother, the Empress Helena, visited the city. This was after the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. Eusebius of Caesarea claimed that she was responsible for the construction of a church which was built over the cave. The building is now referred to as the Church of the Nativity and is a significant pilgrimage destination for Christians. More on that in a bit. And, in this same century, that being the 4th century AD, a traveler known as the Pilgrim of Bordeaux reported that the tombs of David, Ezekiel, Asva, Job, Jesse, and Solomon were located near Bethlehem. But he appears to be the only source of this information. The city was nearly destroyed by the Samaritans during a revolt in 529. But both the city's walls and the church did not escape the destruction. Shortly after that, the Byzantine Emperor Justine I had the church rebuilt. In 614, the Persian Sassanid Empire, in concert with Jewish rebels, captured Bethlehem. Legend has it that they refrained from leveling the church when they saw a mosaic depicting the biblical magi in Persian clothing. In 637, the Islamic conquest of the region overtook the city as part of the Umar ibn al-Qadabab 
second caliphate. The conquering Muslims assured the local Christians that the church would remain for Christian use. Instead of converting the building to a mosque, they constructed a mosque on an adjacent site. Muslim control of the city was taken by the Umayyads in the 8th century and then the Abbasids in the 9th century. We know through uncovered records of a Persian geographer that in the mid-9th century, the church remained in very good condition. This was reconfirmed in 985 when an Arab geographer known as Al-Musk ad-Asi visited Bethlehem. He recorded that the church, in his words, was the Basilica of Constantine, the equal of which does not exist anywhere in the country round. End quote. It was only 24 years later, in 1009, and during the reign of the Sixth Fatimid Caliphate, whose name I know better than trying to pronounce. Anyway, in that year, the Church of the Nativity was ordered to be demolished, but local Muslims protested, primarily because the Christians allowed them to worship in one of the church's interior passages. The Caliphates maintained control of the city until 1099, when the Crusaders finally overtook the Islamists. With their control, they set about fortifying the city and built a new monastery and cloister beside the Church of the Nativity. They also replaced the Eastern Orthodox priests with Roman ones. Then, in 1100, on Christmas Day, Baldwin I, the first king of the Frankish Kingdom of Jerusalem, was coronated in Bethlehem. But the next many years saw much fighting between the Crusaders and the Islamists, with the city being completely destroyed in the process, and it would be rebuilt after the fighting ceased. In 1187, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, Saladin, led the Muslim Ayyubids and in the process captured Bethlehem from the Crusaders. The Roman priests were forced out of the town, and the Eastern Orthodox ones were allowed to return. But Saladin later agreed to allow the return of two Roman priests in 1192. Despite this, and the seeming tolerance of Christians, the return of the Islamists meant fewer European Christian pilgrims made the journey to the holy site. A curious sidebar, a lesser royal known as William IV hailing from the Burgundy region of what is today France, promised the Christian bishops of Bethlehem that if the town ever were to be reconquered by the Muslims, he would welcome the Christian bishops in the small town of Clemency in France. When Bethlehem did fall, the bishop of Bethlehem took him up on his offer and picked up and moved across the European continent to Clemency in 1223. The seat of the bishop remained in the town for close to 600 years until 1789 and the French Revolution. Backing up a bit, well, over 500 years. In 1229, the Crusaders and the Muslims struck a 10-year ceasefire, with the Muslims ceding Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Nazareth, and Sidon to the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. After the ten years had passed, the fighting resumed and Bethlehem was eventually recaptured by the Muslims in 1244. Six years after that, in 1250, and while the city was in the control of the Mamluks, the previous tolerance of Christianity waned. With this, many of the Christian priests left the city. In the mid-13th century, the Mamluks destroyed the city's walls. 
These would not be rebuilt until the rule of the Ottomans, specifically in the early 16th century. The Roman Catholic clergy returned to Bethlehem in the 14th century and even established a monastery adjacent to the Church of the Nativity. But the Greek Orthodox priest retained control of the church itself. In 1291, the Crusaders were driven from the Levant and Bethlehem for the last time. The buildings fell into disrepair over the next many years, partially as a result of neglect, but also due to the skirmishes between the local Christian and Muslim residents. The Ottomans took control of the region in 1516, and from that point forward, well, at least for a few hundred years, the control of the church was fought over between the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox priest. But the control of the city was not in dispute. By the end of the 16th century, Bethlehem had become one of the largest villages in the district of Jerusalem and was subdivided into seven quarters, which if you think about it, makes no sense. Either way, it was still a small town. And the record also shows that the population was about 60% Christian in the early part of that century. But towards the middle of the century, the Muslims had made up the difference, and it was about 50-50 Christian to Muslim. However, the records from the end of the century are a bit murkier, as it showed 287 adult male taxpayers. And this is worthy of a little explanation of the Ottoman tax system. Christians well, really, everyone who wasn't Muslim, were required to pay a tax referred to as a Yiza tax. This was an annual tax charged by the Ottomans on certain non-Muslim males who lived in their territory. Women, children, the elderly, handicapped, sick, insane, monks, hermits, slaves, and temporary visitors were exempted. Also, men who joined the military did not have to pay. And finally, those too poor to pay didn't have to. The Ottomans abolished it in 1856, but the practice continued in other Muslim states. Anyway, why do I bring this up? Well, the 1596 Ottoman census recorded a population of 1,435, with 287 paying tax. What is relatively unknown is what made up the difference between the 1,435 and the 287. Was it Muslims? Exempt people? Women? Children? Probably a mixture. And remember my rant a few weeks ago about recording your methodologies? I'll avoid repeating the rant by just saying, ditto. Several centuries later, in 1867, an American visitor described the town as having a population of between three and 4,000. This is not as precise of a count, but also noted about 100 Protestants, 300 Muslims, and the rest belonged to either the Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox churches, with a few Armenians. Another report from the same year puts the Christian population at 3,000, with an additional 50 Muslims. An 1885 source stated that the population was approximately 6,000 of, quoting, principally Christians, Latins, and Greeks, with no Jewish inhabitants. So, exact numbers may be impossible to obtain, but the general finding was that the town was mostly Christians, with the balance being Muslim. Circling back to the history, for a short period in the 19th century, 
specifically from 1831 to 1841, the town was controlled by the Egyptians. It was during their rule that an earthquake hit. A revenge attack was conducted by Egyptian troops and the Muslim portion of the city was destroyed. The Ottomans regained control in 1841. An American missionary in the mid-19th century reported a population of under 4,000, of whom most were members of the Greek Orthodox Church. He also remarked that the area was suffering through a lack of both potable and irrigation water. From then, through the early 20th century, the economy suffered, partially due to compulsory military service and high taxes. This resulted in a large exodus of the city's productive population who left en masse for, surprisingly, South America. The Ottomans, though, maintained control of the town until their defeat in World War I. After the war, the British controlled the town, control that lasted until 1948. As part of the 1947 United Nations General Assembly's resolution to partition Palestine, Bethlehem was included in the Special International Enclave of Jerusalem to be administered by the UN. In 1948, the city was 85% Christian, primarily Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, with only 13% Muslim. That same year, Bethlehem was captured by Jordan in the Arab-Israeli War. During the conflict, many Muslim refugees from areas captured by Israeli forces fled to the Bethlehem area, primarily settling in two official refugee camps. This flood of refugees largely altered the demographics of the city from a Christian majority to a Muslim one, a migration that echoes today. But control of the city, as well as the west bank of the Jordan River, went to the Israelis 19 years later during the Six-Day War. After the conclusion of the conflict, an Israeli census found that the town was 54% Muslim and 46% Christian. This dramatic change is held through today, with the town being about two-thirds Muslim and one-third Christian. Finally, a census in 2007 counted just over 25,000 residents, not very large at all. In 1995, as part of the Oslo Accords, Bethlehem came to be administered by the Palestinian Authority. More specifically, in December 1995, Israeli troops withdrew from Bethlehem and three days later, the city came under both the administrative and military control of the Palestinian National Authority. As part of the Accords, Israelis retained access to Rachel's tomb on the northern outskirts of the city. Also, the Church of the Nativity remained open to peoples of all faiths. And, unfortunately in the time since the Accords and the transfer of control, there has been a great deal of unrest in the city between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Finally, as for the church itself, it is currently being renovated. This renovation has gained the approval of three Christian organizations, specifically the Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Armenian churches. While the restoration was in process, in July 2016, Italian restoration workers uncovered a mosaic angel in the Church of the Nativity, which was previously hidden under plaster. As a note, whenever ancient Middle Eastern churches are restored, this seems to be a common occurrence. The mosaic was uncovered using a thermographic technique, 
that scan solid surfaces in the search for works hidden underneath the existing plaster. The Palestinian Authority, which as a reminder has controlled the area since the 1995 Oslo Accords, has vowed to treat Christians equally. But as you would suspect, there have been incidents of violence against them by militant factions. Such is the long history of that small town. And that's probably a good place to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the history in Genesis chapter 35. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.